If you're anything like me, doing uncertain things scares you. It's not bad to be scared, but we shouldn't let it hold us back. The greatest things we will ever accomplish in our lives are going to be somewhat terrifying. There's an unknown you can't ever remove when you consider the future. But what you can make sure of is that you're better tomorrow than you are today. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is David Richards. David is an international best-selling author, ex-marine, current yoga instructor, and life strategist. If those things seem disconnected, it's because they're all very different. But what they provide is challenge and purpose. That's what we're talking about today. Overcoming the biggest obstacle. Yourself. David is such a cool guy to talk to, and even right now I have a copy of The Lighthouse Keeper right beside me. Here. Book Pages. It's a really captivating book, and David has a way of writing that just keeps your imagination engaged constantly. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to thank Antonio and the Canadian Mahito for hanging out with me down in San Jose last week. It was a blast. I'm hoping to do more events soon and to meet even more fans. Let's take steps towards realizing our dreams. Welcome to the show. David Richards. Colton, thank you so much. I am so excited to be with you. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you on. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, so, uh, gosh, uh, life strategist, international bestselling author, yoga instructor, uh, public speaker, but uh, I grew up in the military, so I uh, had a really unique experience growing up, and then not knowing what to do, joined the military, uh, so uh, spent 15 years on active duty, was in Somalia way, way back in the early 90s. Um, did some really amazing stuff, but knew I wanted to do something else. So got out in 2006, became a yoga instructor. At the same time, I went to work for a Fortune 500 company. And that sort of began my journey back to becoming uh, a writer, which is what my one of my childhood dreams was. Yeah. Is that just like, you know, you were following kind of the military track and then decided like, this isn't for me. I want to do something else. It, to an extent. Yeah, it was just you know, it's so strange because when you grow up on a base and, and most of my childhood was spent on military bases, we had four years where we lived out in town or off base. And then uh, we lived for three years on the island of Okinawa. But even like most of that was on on a military base. Um, but you're really isolated from what the rest of the world is. And what's different about being in the military than in the regular population is everybody aboard the base is a focused on something outside themselves. Like everybody aboard the base, there's this general direction of looking outside the country to see where hotspots are, where the next threat's going to come from. And so as a result, there's not like you don't do college, like we didn't do any college tours when it was time for me to go to college. And I remember my sitting down with my parents and my dad said, you got to pay for half your school. We'll pay for the other half, but you either get a job, you get a scholarship and it's like my junior year and I hadn't necessarily paid attention to grades all that much. And so like the academic scholarship was a long shot. Um, my brother had gone ROTC and was at Penn state 
And I was like, okay, well, that's a way to pay for school. So I don't have to work during the school year. And so that was kind of my calculus. And so that's what I did. And initially I was going to go in the Navy because I had grown up in the, my dad was a Marine and I was kind of tired of the Marine Corps lifestyle and sort of, I blame the Marines for us moving all the time. Um, and then it turns out the Navy is really hard because they focus all their time on engineering and I have a liberal arts creative mind. And so I was like, Ugh, this is spooky. I can't do this stuff. I'm going to go join the Marines. And it was kind of this, like my, my college roommate was also my best friend from high school. So his dad was a Marine and he went into the army ROTC program for the same reasons that I went into the Navy one. And as we kind of came to the revelation around the same time, he's like, yeah, the army's not for me, dude. I got to go. I'm going to do the Marines. I'm like, me too. And uh, I didn't get accepted the initial time. Like you have to apply. You just don't become a Marine. And so I didn't get accepted. The initial, my ap application got declined. And that was a big wake up call for me because I was like, like I, I grew up in this. Like, how can I not be good enough to do what like I've been doing my entire life in to some degree? And so I got really focused. I stopped drinking. Um, I focused on my grades. I remember I was like a robot. I would like get up, have my breakfast and then speed walk to class. So I didn't socialize with people. I was just like, I have to get my grades good. I have to get my physical fitness better. And when you do that, then it's like, you want to become a Marine. Like you want this challenge you want to accomplish and conquer this mountain in front of you. Um, and so you go to officer candidate school and that is super intense. And when you're in college and you suddenly go from, you know, especially when I went, this is right around Desert Storm. People were like, like the Marines who are training you are is super intense because the country just went to war. And that is a huge cultural shift from the college mindset. And so you do that for the summer at the end of your junior year, you come back, senior year was a cake. I had my grades were good. My physical fitness was good. Um, and it was just great. And then and then you become a Marine and you're like, okay. And, and going through training, I mean, you're doing amazing stuff. And so you're like, yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this until I'm 95 years old because this is awesome. Yeah. And that's, those are definitely like two different ways you can respond to like, you know, getting turned down is yeah. one. You're like, oh, well then I'm going to keep doing it until I succeed or I'm going to push harder. Yep. Or you just like collapse you just crumble underneath the pressure and you're just like, oh, well, I guess I'll never be able to do it. Well, and I had that initially, like when I got, I remember because it was, it was, it was so strange that we were all a part of a fraternity and the fraternity was primarily ROTC. So it was like just Navy Marines, maybe a couple of army people. And so my roommate had applied and one of our best friends had applied and we all found out the same day and they both got it. And I did. And I was devastated. I was like, I remember I sat in my room with like the, the toughest guy in our fraternity, this Irish guy named Joe. And uh, I was like bawling my eyes out, listening to Guns N' Roses patience, like the song patience or that song. And uh, I like, I gave myself a pity party for a day and a half or so. And then I was like, okay, that's it. Like do this, like get focused. And I did, I shifted immediately and it was, I know the stuff is not going to help me get this goal accomplished, get rid of that and focus on the things I need to focus on. Yeah. Well, and then eventually, I mean, like you said, you had a good career in that and then eventually kind of made another hard right turn. 
into an entirely different lifestyle of like, you know, practicing yoga and writing books. Yeah. It, it was so funny because I was an English major in college and I did the writing option. I mean, I certainly loved literature. Like I was always super romantic. I loved like Keats, Yeats, like just these great poetic giants from, from a long time ago. And, uh, but I knew like, by the time the end of my sophomore year rolled around, I knew I was going to be in the Marines. So I knew it was like, this is happening. And so you kind of look at like being an English major as, okay, like, it's just, it's not, I didn't see that it was going to have any relevance to what I was going to do in the Marines. And, and certainly to an extent it really didn't, but I thought it was like just getting, letting go of a childhood dream. Like, okay, I have to adult now. And as I went through my career, I could not, I could not escape that part of me. Like I just, I could not get it, get rid of it. And I tried, like, I was just like, okay, Marines, tough as nails, no emotion, like, ugh. and I remember I was about 10 years into my career and I just got relocated off. I just divorced and relocated to the East coast of the United States. And my boss was like this super awesome, tough as nails Marine Colonel who had been a Boston police officer. So he was just like this grizzled dude. Like he was a street cop up in Boston. Like it was just like this badass dude. And uh, he painted, like he painted and he had his paintings up in his office. And I was blown away because I just, in my career and certainly I was in the combat arms. So you're like you're, you're the war fighting stuff. I just did not see a lot of artistic nature in the military and so that like inspired me and then like i i, I was in a class i was taking them pursuing a master's in psychology at the time and someone in my class gave a really compelling presentation on something and that inspired me too and i was like ah, i'm gonna start writing poetry again like i don't care if i'm a marine like i'm gonna do this and i did and it was i had it was like i don't know six or nine months where i was just writing poetry and I was on cloud nine because it was, I was finally kind of finding harmony between these two seemingly disparate parts of myself and making them work together. And it wasn't, and some of the poems were like really, I don't know, fruity or romantic or whatever, but some of them were like about Achilles and about warfare and about like just sort of this ceaseless obsession with revenge or whatever the case may be, you know, if, if you, if you know the story of Achilles and, um, that like had a big impact on me. And so I was still kind of committed to like doing a full blown military career, then retiring. And uh, I got like about 15 years into my, uh, my career and I had some, I had surgery. I had like a benign tumor in my neck. And then I thought like, I am literally following in my dad's footsteps. Like I have, I have no, I had no blueprint for what I was going to do because I didn't know I needed one. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to do this and I'll do what he did. And then, uh, and I got to that point where I'm like, you know what? I don't want this anymore. Like I've never been on the other side of the military fence. I've never been in that world. Like, and, and in some ways as a veteran, you never really are because like I, I grew up in the Marines and I was in the Marines. And so I had that perspective, but I was like, I, the only, and, and plus like from a relationship standpoint, I couldn't make that work. And I was like, the only thing I haven't tried is switching what I did for a living. And so in 2006, I made the decision to get out. 
I only applied to like three companies and it was a defense contractor outside of Virginia, uh, Cisco, the, the big IT company. And then I applied, I had a, an alumni, a, a classmate of mine who had been, um, who had gone to this really cool school in the Marines and he had developed a security firm in the Middle East. So he's like a mercenary. And like that had a cool vibe to it, like mercenary. But I also realized if I did that, I would never have a normal life. Like that would be it. I would never see my family. It would just be as cool, as attractive as it sounded. I knew it was antithetical to really what I wanted to experience. Um, And so I did the Fortune 500 company thing with Cisco. uh, And immediately, like the weekend I got out of the Marines, the the weekend I left active duty, um, I took my first yoga class. And that was not by design. It wasn't a plan. I just, uh, I was reading Sports Illustrated as at my parents' house in North Carolina because Cisco's big campus is right there. And um, there's like some NFL player was talking about how he used yoga to strengthen his core, like when he's working out. And so I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like I work out at the gym a lot. I'll give that a shot. So I went to my first class that Saturday or Sunday, and it was a gentle yoga class. So if you don't know a lot about yoga, it's really it's breathing with movement, but it's also about awareness. It's being present in your body as opposed to thinking about other stuff while you're going through this class. And uh, so the gentle class was really like there's no exertion, you're not really sweating. And I finished the class. I was like, okay, that's it was all right. It wasn't anything spectacular, but I was like, Oh, I'll give it another shot and pick another class. So two or three days go by and I went to another class and it's a different instructor, a different style of yoga. And we were like 30 or 40 minutes into class. And I am like drenched in sweat. I'm like, what is going on? This is insane. And we're trying to do this bind, which if you're not familiar with yoga, it's where you like contort your body. And then you're like, bringing an arm under a leg and another arm behind you. And you're trying to bring your hands together as a bind. And I couldn't do that. I was just, I was inflexible at that point. And so I'm watching the sweat just like pool on my mat as it drips off my forehead. And this lovely woman who's the instructor comes by and she's like, use your hand towel. And so I had a hand towel by me. So I grabbed that and wiped my face. And she's like, no, use your hand towel to bind your hands. I'm like, oh, okay. So I threw the hand towel behind me and I bound my hands. But I was, Colton, I was hooked. Like yoga, something magical happened when I got on the yoga mat. And certainly part of it was my last assignment in the Marines. I was spending a lot of time in Central America. I was not spending a lot of time in front of a computer. I just, I just wasn't doing that. And so when I went to work for this company, like I would get 50 email in two hours and I would, I remember I would leave work and my mind would just be like this noise of to-do lists and reminders and things I had to do the next day and things I didn't do today. And when I got into the yoga mat, it just got quiet. And I was like, whoa, what is that? I want more of that. So I got hooked and within a year I became an instructor and then I started teaching yoga. Well, and some of that goes back to this, uh, you know, you've been put into a scenario where it's like, oh, hey, you can't do this. And you're like, why Why can't I do that? All right, what if I figure out a way to do it? Like, what if I just keep trying and I get better at it? Like, that sounds, you know, your first yoga class was like, hey, I can't get my hands together. Yeah. And they're like, great, use this towel until you can. And you're like, well, oh, I'll get there. <laughs> well, and it's such a different, uh, like you said, it's such a different 
reality from the one I was in just weeks prior. Like, I mean, I don't know during my Marine Corps career, I don't know if I could have pointed out to a yoga studio. Like it just was not on my radar. And it was interesting too, because part of it was growing up in Japan on the Island of Okinawa for a couple of years. Like, I, I mean, I was just becoming a teenager when we left, like I was 13 and then we left my birthday was April and we left probably in July of that year, I think. But that, that left a huge impression on me because when you are in a foreign country at that age and you have this instant awareness that you're the foreigner, it's not the people on the other side of the fence. Like you're, you're the one who doesn't belong here necessarily. It gives you a completely different perspective. And then more than that, it was being exposed to Japanese culture at that age had a huge impression on me. And I got, I started to flirt, like even at 13, I started to flirt with the idea of meditation because that was something that I picked up on while I was there. Um, and that, lent itself into yoga too in a lot of ways and that certainly was that was kind of the thread that tied my military career with this creative poetic side of me that i had too um and so getting out into the marines that was you know getting out and then starting to get into yoga that was really a chance to explore that but at the same time the yoga community is very different like i remember like going to people like going to weekend retreats and I still had my defenses up from the military because it's just, especially like I'd never been on this side of the world. Like I didn't know what this world was. And like people would come up and hug me. And I was like, what the, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what is this? Like, it was just, it was strange. It really, and it took me, honestly, it took me years to kind of like melt that away and be like, like it, it's kind of beautiful when you see people just sort of really comfortable with themselves. And that's kind of what you realize is in the military you certainly there's a lot of internal fortitude that you have to have, but it's framed off what it takes to be a Marine. And so there's a sense of an internal self, but it's also very externally focused in a way that doesn't allow for it to like, it has to be shaped kind of a certain way. Like you have to have discipline and those kind of things. And yoga was just an expansion of that. That was kind of this pleasant surprise because it was like, I've always believed like I, again, coming back from Japan, like I had this samurai Bushido mentality about service. And that was sort of how I tried to approach my military career. And that ethos is, there's a thread of that in the Marines, but it's not cultivated to the extent that, you know, certainly the samurai did. And, and when I got to yoga, it was like, that's be open to this because this is going to help you grow personally, spiritually, however you want to look at it. Sure. Yeah. So you kind of start pursuing your dreams and in doing so you start helping other people to pursue their dreams. Yeah. It's, you know, it was, uh, it was quite the journey. Um, when I, when I got out of the Marines and I realized, even though I traveled a lot for work, I knew that there was a remote possibility that the company I worked for could say, we need you to move to Florida or to New York or wherever like that, that. I knew that was a possibility in really extreme circumstances, but we also live in an age where thanks to the power of technology, tons of people can also work from home and be just as effective. So um, I was traveling a lot, but I realized like, I'm, I'm not going to move. And so much of my life had been based on decision, my decision-making previously when I was in the military was based on how long I had at a duty station because especially like when it came to things like relationships, because it's like, 
I'll just give you an example. Like if I met someone who was amazing, like, and I had six months left in the duty station, there was no point in my mind in pursuing a relationship because it was like, you're not going to, like, we're not going to get this thing off the launch pad in six months to the point where you're going to be comfortable giving up whatever your career is and job and moving with me to where I have to go. And, um, and so I didn't have that when I got out of the Marines and I was like, this is wild. This is so cool because I, I kind of like, I, I've lived in the same place now for 15 years and I've traveled a ton, but I have a sense of a place that I'd never really had before. And that was really powerful to me. And that was my pathway to realizing, oh my God, I can start writing again. And so for 11 years, 11 years after I got out, I started working on, I wanted to write a horror story because I loved horror growing up. I love Stephen King. I love the classics like Frankenstein and Dracula. And I would at different intervals, probably the first one was like 2008 or 2009. I had an idea for a horror story. I was so excited because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be it. And so I, start, I started writing and I wasn't like, to put it in context, I didn't have a good writing practice. Like I didn't write every day. And as a writer, you have to, <laughs> you have to write a journal. It's not like you just sit down and magic comes out from your fingertips. It does not work that way, which I, it took me 11 years to kind of figure that out. Um, and I'd get like a hundred pages in and then like the story would peter out, the characters would peter out. It was just hard. Like I did, again, I just didn't have this writing practice and it was hard to like, where do I take this? And so I would like sit on it for four or five weeks and then finally be like, yep, that's not it. Like, and I would let it go. And, and obviously I was busy with, I was teaching yoga. I was doing work. So it wasn't like I was like wasting time, but um that was a struggle. And so like a year and a half went by and then I had another idea for another story, sat down, same thing happened. I like got about 120 pages in and that went on for 11 years. And I was so frustrated because even my last story, like was this really cool horror. Like it was like sort of biblical and it was, it was awesome. And I had an idea for the ending and I, I just couldn't make it work. And then in 2016, someone gave me a whiskey and yoga t-shirt for Christmas because I liked scotch. I was a yoga instructor. Like I love the irony. And then I read Napoleon Hill over the holidays. I read Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich. And that book in the first or second chapter, if, if anybody hasn't read it, it's, a, it's an amazing and phenomenal book. Um, but in the first or second chapter, he asks the reader, what is your purpose in life? And that question hit me like a sledgehammer. Because the idea that my life had purpose, especially in the military, when you know that your life is expendable, I mean, that's, uh, I don't want to sound extreme, but you're, like your purpose is to go do stuff so that other people have to go do it. And you're willing to risk your life to do that. Like, that's kind of what you sign up. That's what the contract basically says. Um, and so that was like this huge revelation. And I remember I was so inspired. I grabbed a notebook and a pen I wrote my first ever life purpose statement right there. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. I'm going to help people find their purpose in life. And I was, I was like, I just catapulted into like, okay, forget horror stories. I'm going to do a self-help book on helping people find their purpose in life. And I'm going to call it whiskey and yoga. And so then like the first thing was, okay, how do I put whiskey and yoga together? And that took a while. I was like, what do those things have in common that I can get away with this? Um, and really it's what I came up with was they both tell the journey of a spirit and for whiskey. Obviously it's the journey that takes place in a cask. And if you've ever had really old whiskey, uh, you appreciate that it's like tasting something in slow motion. 
And then obviously for yoga, it's the journey of a spirit in a in human form kind of thing. So I made that connection and it took me six months to write the book. I wrote 200 pages that I didn't use. Like I wrote 200 pages, four months in, I looked at what I had and I was like, this is not going to work. Like, this is not the book that people need to read like, to find their purpose in life. Uh, so I scrapped basically everything. I think I had like six or seven pages of stuff. I'm like, okay, I can use this. But I sat down, I wrote a 10 chapter outline about helping people find their purpose in life. And every chapter had a unique yoga whiskey correlation to it kind of. Um, and I wrote and it was, and that was, that was really trying because it was, one, I had shifted genres from what I was planning to write about, like what I had basically been focused on my entire life to try and write. Two, it was, could I finish something? Like that was probably the biggest thing was, could I, could, can I finish a book? Can I finish and publish a book? Because it has been 11 years at this point. It could, like, I could have done this, like, I, I mean, I don't, I won't go back to like, oh, if I had, you know, if I had had the foresight and the vision, but like when I was young, but the reality was I, I took amazing experiences away from the military that certainly shaped me as a writer. And so I got over my anxiety of finishing the book. I got over the anxiety of I'm now going to share a part of myself that I hadn't planned on sharing. And that's scary because people are judgmental and you're being vulnerable but what I realized through the process of writing and how I realized when I started changing people's lives with it was being vulnerable is how we connect with one another. And I remember I had a, a young woman in my office. We, we worked together. She was a, like a sales vendor for another company, but we worked together and I was telling her about the book even before it was written. And so we're talking and then I had to walk her out of the building and I'm like, Hey, it was great to see you. And she stopped me and she said, you changed my life. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet of you to say. And she put in a hand. I remember she put her hand on my arm and she said, no, you changed my life. And I was blown away because like the book wasn't even out at that point. But I realized like I had had this impact on someone. And that was so fulfilling because it wasn't that like I was trying to sell her on something. I was speaking from conviction about my journey and getting to write this book and what I hope the book would do for others. And that is what impacted her. And so I knew, like I knew at the very core of who I am that I had found something and it was up to me to continue to mine that. Um, but that was a huge shift that really got me focused on writing that book and finishing that book. Yeah. And that's awesome to just have somebody say like, you know, something so I guess really impactful that you're like, whoa, because if you made a difference in somebody's life, like that is such an immeasurable change, like it's such an impact that you can have that it's, I mean, it's beyond comprehension. I think for most of us to even think about like, what, what does that mean to impact somebody else's life? Um, yeah, it, it really is. I, and it's I, another, I just, I just had a coffee with a friend of mine last week and he read, he read whiskey and yoga a few years back. And it was funny because he, uh, he was also a salesperson from another company that I worked with and he had replaced someone in that company that I had a really good relationship with. And so when he came on, I was a little like, he felt a little too salesy. And I just remember like this dude is overbearing. Um, 
but we connected and uh, somehow we got in, like I shared with him that I wrote on the side. And so he asked me about my book. And so he picked up a copy of whiskey and yoga and it transformed our relationship. And, and to make a long story short, he had a really successful sales job. He was really, I mean, he's, he's super good at what he does. And, but his passion was really about real estate. And he wanted to like have a real estate portfolio. He wanted the recurring revenue to come in so his family didn't have to worry. And so he started building this business on the side while he was still doing the sales job. And then, I don't know, it was probably maybe 18 months after he really got started that we met and he said, you know, I have like apartment complexes now that I own and I put six or eight hours a day, a week into my job that is paying my salary and i just looked at him, i won't say his name but i was like man i yeah why are you doing that like why are why like if your dream if you're building your dream then just go step into it like what are you afraid of like you you know how to do this and if you devote more of your time to it without this sort of thing that's holding you back what is that going to do for you and so he got to this realization. He's like, you're right. Like I'm all, I'm, I'm staying for the benefits and for the salary, but like, I don't need the salary and I can get the insurance on my own, like all this other stuff. So he left and now his real estate portfolio is, you know, he's got multi-story complex, like all this stuff. And he teaches other people how to do what he's done too, which he has his own podcast, which is, is really fantastic. And you realize that that is the secret sauce to life is, helping someone advance, not in your game, but in their game. Like, and that's, and that's kind of what my next book is about is this idea that life is a game. And if it, if you really believe that you have to figure out who you're playing against because you always play a game against somebody. And like, it's, it's, it's been remarkable to see the impact that it's had on people because it, it just reinforces in a person that how we serve others is the greatest contribution that we're going to make to this planet. Yeah. And there's, I mean, two really hard things, I think for most of us, myself included, uh, to get through, which like the first one is, you know, what is my dream or what, what should I be doing? Like, that's so hard, I think to define. And then the other one is overcoming that doubt. Like no matter, no matter what I do, like no matter if I'm good at something or bad at something, I always feel doubt. I'm like, oh man, I am doing terrible at this. Even if people are like, oh, you're doing great. And I'm like, I I don't know how to define a dream or to get past the doubt. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, let's tackle doubt first. Um, and I'll give you a great example. So if I go back to when I was in college. <clears throat> so at the end, so for ROTC in preparation for officer candidate school, at least I went to Penn State and at, at Penn State at the um midpoint of your junior year for your spring semester, we would meet with a Marine, like an actual Marine from the ROTC unit every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6 a.m. to work out. And we would do like, we would run three miles or like do calisthenics or exercise or whatever, but we'd work out for an hour, get back home and shower, and then get on with the college day. And so it just so happened that my uh, 21st birthday fell on a Wednesday same day we have workout. So at midnight, Tuesday night, I went out with my friends and 
like broke all our records for how quickly someone got sick from drinking too much alcohol, but like just consumed tons of alcohol in a ridiculously short amount of time. And I missed the morning training. Like I missed this training and I was just, I was too hungover. I was, I was just horrible. I was in a terrible place. And I remember like the Marine came to where I lived and like pounded on the door and he was like, you will be at my office at 10 o'clock this morning. And I was like, Oh shit. Like what just happened? And I was like terrified. And I remember like, I, I sobered up really quickly because like, this is legit. And I went to his office and I remember, like, I remember I was standing in front of him and he looked at me and he's like, I don't know if you have what it takes to make it. And again, Colton, you want to talk about like just a punch to the gut. This guy was responsible for my training and for, you know, giving me the opportunity to be successful. And now he was telling me within, you know, probably what, three months of me reporting to officer candidate school, you might not make it because you don't have the right attitude and you just, you're not tough enough. And I felt the pressure of my dad having been in, my brother was a Marine at that point. And I was like, oh my God, my dad was still in at that point. And I was like, oh my God, like I, and I had such doubt. I had, I, like, it was, I like OCS was already this mental game because it's, you hear, like you have the benefit of the people who've gone, who are seniors now who've gone through it. And they're like, oh, like, there's like, this is what you're getting ready for. And so I did, I battled doubt and doubts just when you get in your head and you start having this conversation with yourself, what if it, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? And it can run away from you. And again, I gave myself about two days. That was Wednesday. I probably by Friday that week, I was like, no more drinking. I like, I would, when we had parties at our house, I would go play basketball for like two or three hours. And I would come back at like nine, or, nine or 10 o'clock at night when the party had died down or like had moved wherever it was going to move or whatever. And, uh, and that would kind of be it. And I realized like, whenever you have doubt, it's a challenge to yourself. Okay. Who do I like, who do I need to become to accomplish, to overcome this thing that ties into the dreams? A lot of people, and, and there's nothing wrong with having like small dreams. Like I want a new car or I want this or I want that. Like there's nothing wrong with that. What, especially in this day and age, what I feel people lack is a compelling vision for their future because, and that is the bigger you can make it like the most ridiculous dream you can conceive of, you can accomplish. It's just a question of what are you, who are you willing to become to make that happen? And part of what, people struggle with is in order to do something you've never done, you have to become someone you've never been. I mean, that's just the simple truth. That means letting go of the identity that you have to obtain the identity that you want. And that scares a lot of people because that's where the doubt comes in. But again, it's like, how bad do you want to become this version of yourself? And people think of the object that they're trying to obtain is the end state. It's not the object you're trying to attain really is or what the end state is really is this version of yourself that you get to become to realize and experience that. And that's a huge piece. And so that's why when I tell people about dreaming, it's like, first you have to develop a relationship with yourself and that for people, a lot of times the relationship with themselves is this, the smartphone. And if you want to understand kind of how your brain operates or how your mind thinks, go look at your search history, go look at your brows and see where you're mentally spending time 
on the internet because that's going to give you a, a bit of an insight into what your identity is. Once you, I found the best way to develop a relationship is through journaling and not journaling on a computer, but journaling with a pen and paper. Because when you do that, you are forced to have a conversation with yourself. And that is how all, and that's kind of what, that was what I, how I blossomed into a writer really was. I didn't really have a great writing practice when I wrote Whiskey and Yoga in 2017. I was a little bit, I was kind of starting to come into it when I wrote my second book, The Lighthouse Keeper, which came out in 2020. I've been working on my third book for ever since the pandemic began, really, really in October of 2019 was when I first got the idea. But I've written over a thousand pages of journal entries. I have studied things. I've written hundreds of pages of versions of this story. And I've, I've, I've come to appreciate that the best way to take control of your identity and your destiny is to write it down. Because when you do that, it gives you the power to shape and direct where you want to put your energy, where you want to put your focus. If you're just relying on this idea that you have in your head that you haven't put down and synthesized on paper, it's really hard to conceptualize. It's really hard to perpetuate that and conceptualize it unless you stay obsessed with it, you know, 24 seven night and day, but putting it down on paper gives you a way to cultivate and understand and measure it. Like how am I making progress? Where am I not getting to the points I want? So I would say when it comes to dreams and doubt, there's definitely a correlation there. But the key to any to either is really taking action towards what you want and minimizing how much energy and time you spend on what you don't want. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I love that you said, you know, like dream big, you know, like yep. dream as big as you want. And one of the things that like in, you know, doing things big that I feel like I was very cautious of, like when I started this show, I got a journal, right? I got a little like a planner that just said like, Hey, j- chart out your journey to podcasting here. And it has a section that says like, what are your goals for the next month, for the next year, for the next three years, whatever it is. And I just looked at it and I'm like, man, I can't make my goals too big because if I don't hit, if I don't hit my goals, then I'm going to feel like this whole thing is collapsing around me. Like I'm, I'm too far below what I need to hit. And it's like, yeah, I still had the dream to do, you know, to go big, but my goals like just kept getting smaller. Like I looked through it just the other day. It sits behind me back here. Yeah. Um, I looked through it and it was like, yeah, by six months have 50 listeners. And I was like, boy, this was a really small goal. Like 50 is 50 is not a large number by any standards. (laughs) It's not, it is not. Well, you know, and it, it's, it's a good point. And two great examples that come to mind for me. And one of them just came to mind while you were talking. The first one is Thomas Edison. Um, and if anybody has studied Thomas Edison and there's, there's differing reports, but the, the most accurate one I've seen, or at least the most recent one I've seen, which I guess I'm calling it the most accurate is he took 10,000 attempts to make the incandescent light bulb, 10,000. And you think about like, I I'm, I'm, I'm certainly guessing like, you know, to kind of comp- compare what you said, like he, uh, he probably didn't say, well, I'm going to do this 500 times. If I don't get it 500 times, that's it. Like he didn't. But how many of us after 10 times were like, I've I've tried everything. And so he did 10 and then 100 and then 1,000 and then 10,000 times. Like, and you realized his, there's no other way you get to that place until you realize this man was obsessed. Like this man basically became the light bulb because he was like, I'm going to find a way to do this. And he did. 
The other example that just comes to mind, I was going to say Henry Ford on the eight-cylinder engine, but the other one that comes to mind really because of the impact, and, and certainly today we can all relate to it, is think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That really started because Robert Downey Jr. had an idea to bring Iron Man to the big screen. Like he was, I want to say like they'd already done you know, one of the movies, I don't remember, I don't remember exactly how everything started, but in 2008, I think is when Iron Man came out and it was all like, they had a script, but they changed the script. If you've ever read about like how they, they, they changed the script on the spot for the entire thing. So they basically did this almost impromptu and that movie launched the next 30 movies, whatever they're up to now, the shows. It gave Marvel Studios their properties back. They got like a relationship with Spider-Man and Sony. They got Deadpool and the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, like all because of a, I would say, a dream that one person had to bring a relatively then obscure superhero to the big screen. So if you don't think like if you think your dreams are too big, I would say think again because and I I don't know I don't know Robert Downey Jr. but I can only imagine that like he feels a sense of responsibility for the success that Marvel's had because he was he was like if if Iron Man had bombed and not been everything that it was, we probably wouldn't have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So dreams, dr if your dream doesn't scare you a little bit. Like, like with an excited kind of like tension, then it's not big enough. Yeah. And I, I love the, uh, I didn't know any of that about the, uh, the Iron Man franchise, but it's really cool. And I'm a big fan of Iron Man, even pre the movies, which yeah. is, it is obscure. It was a super obscure hero to grab, but, um, I also like the Edison thing because I feel like, you know, you're right. When you do something 10 times, you're like, man, I've tried everything. I can't figure it out. <laughs> And then you get to like 50, 100. You're like, look, I've messed it up so many times. I'm bound to get it right soon. And then you get to like 10,000 and you're like, eh, I told you I'd get it. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's so crazy. Like I worked for, for basically for two years. I couldn't come up with the title for this book that I've been working on. And I, like I thought I had it in October of 2019 was the first idea for it. And then I changed it slightly like by April of 2020. And then from April 2020 until November of 2021, I was like shopping for titles. And it was, and it was, and the reason that's funny to me is because for me, I can't write something until I know what the title is because the title is the first outline of the book. And if the title doesn't explain what the book's about, I can't, like, there, I can't, I can't conceive what the book's about. And so, like, finally, I got the title in November of last year. And then I wrote the first draft in December. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is so cool, but it was ridiculous because I would like, I would have a title and it would last maybe like a couple hours. I'm like, Nope, that's not good enough. And then I get another one. And then finally, like in last summer, I had one and it had staying power. It was like with me for two or three months. I was like, all right, I'm liking this. This is pretty good. And by like October, November, I was like, yeah, what is this? What is this? And I came up with it and I was like, Oh my God, that's it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and really when you think about it, Colton, I, I guess this is the other piece that goes back to this concept of identity. You don't want the current version of yourself to show up in your, in your future life. Like you, you want to be the person there, but like the person that's the holding you back, whatever is holding you back from realizing your dreams 
is the stuff that we need to let go of. And sometimes, again, that's really hard to do because people get comfortable in who they are and growth always feels a little scary. And certainly over the last couple of years with the pandemic, growth has felt a little scary because we've all had to kind of undergo it to a certain extent. But you want like you want your dream to pull you towards it. Like that's how big a dream you want is something that's like, I am going to, because that's where your resolve comes in, right? That's where it's not, I've tried everything. It's okay, what haven't I tried? What do I need to do differently? How do I step a foot to the right or a foot to the left to see this thing differently, to take a different approach, to get me closer to my goal and close to my outcome? And, and that takes, that's a muscle. And then what you kind of realize is if I develop that muscle constantly, then that's really how I take charge of my life. Because a lot of people today, when we seek comfort, we want this idea that we know how life's going to turn out. Like we know what to expect. And I like to think of that as being a passenger on a cruise ship. You know, it's fun. There's an all you can eat buffet. There's entertainment. You're not really in charge. You think you're in charge because you get to eat and do all the stuff you want, but you're not really in charge compared with if you are the captain of your own ship and you are sailing the seas, you are navigating today's weather, whatever that may be. And that's where the excitement, the juices of life. And then it's like, okay, what is my destination? Where am I going to go to? Never mind, there are going to be storms. They're going to throw you off course. It's, I, okay, I, I took a wrong turn or I did whatever. Where's my goal? Where's my lighthouse? Where's my outcome? It's over there. Okay, that's where we're going to go. And you do that. And that's a very different experience than being a, a passenger on a cruise ship. They're both, they're both exciting in different ways. One's just a little less comfortable than the other one, but that's where, that's where like the, the juice of life really is, is in willingness, willingness to be uncomfortable so that you can grow. Yeah. And I think you're really like drilled down well on that one, David, because you're like, okay, let's look at it from the cruise ship perspective. Like, yeah, you can be the captain, but if you are not improving yourself, if you're seeing the same version of yourself 10 years in the future, it's like being a cruise ship captain with a boat that never left dock. Yeah, it like, really yeah, is. You, you got a big boat under you, but I mean, the boat is basically adhered to the dock at this point. Like you haven't really done much. Yeah, it's it's, it's a great it's a great analogy, right? Because it's and granted, you are if you are the captain of your own ship, you are going to see storms. Like there is those are unavoidable. But that's what makes a skilled navigator. And there's a great quote, I don't remember who said it, but it said like calm seas never made for a skilled sailor. And and whether we like it or realize it or not, every one of us is a captain of our own ship. It's just a matter of what what's the course you're on and are you cruising, like trying to stay comfortable and not letting the outside world like try to dictate too much of what's going on or are you like defining the circumstances instead of letting the circumstances define you? Yeah, and that's very, like it leans into the, um, what is the quote? The worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah. Like if if you just got out on this journey in your boat, you hit the small wave and you freak out like, yeah, well, that's the biggest wave you've encountered so far, but you know, a year or two years down the road, when you've had a couple of setbacks, you're like, ah, whatever I've seen bigger. Yeah. I mean, you, and that's, and that's it. And you realize again, it's this idea. One of the greatest things I've heard in the past five years, certainly this really changed my life was this concept uh, that life doesn't happen to you, life happens for you. And if you look at life as happening to you, that is 
where people develop this victim mindset because it's like, why did this happen to me? Why does this keep happening to me? Why does this always happen to me? And it's this self-fulfilling prophecy because what we think about, we attract into our lives, right? That's just, that's quantum physics. That's quantum entanglement. That's kind of the nature of the universe. When you shift and you look at it from life happens for me, that is a completely different perspective. And then it's like, okay, well, if I understand the quantum nature of things and that we know now that light responds, light particles of light respond to how they're observed, which is, I mean, in one sense is super freaky, but in another sense, it's like, okay, that just means that to some extent, we don't know what yet because not everyone understands quantum physics uh, to the same degree, but we can shape our reality. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Emoto's water experiment, this great video on YouTube where this, this doctor took uh, water, like glasses of water. Have you heard of this? I haven't actually. Okay. Uh, so he took glasses of water at the same water source and he's set, he brought some of the water to a group of people and he said, okay, just think beautiful thoughts. As you look at the water, think of like love and harmony and bliss and unity and all these gorgeous thoughts. And uh, that was one group. Then he took same source of water to a prison and he invited prisoners to look at the water, but he wanted the prisoners to think about like murder and death and harming people and ugly things. And then what he did was he looked at the crystals of water from each source. And when he looked at the crystals of water from the positive people, like they, the crystals look like snowflakes. It was like really beautiful, ornate, different and different like spirals and stuff. And so you can see like these people's thoughts were defining these water crystals. And so then he went to the prisoners and what they looked at. And when he looked at the water crystals there, they're like yellow malformed, like dark spots and splotches in them. And just like this really completely different form of water crystal. And so you get to that point where like, there's this, you, you understand that concept and when you get to that place, you realize that, okay, if I can shape my reality, then what thoughts are things, then what I focus on really matters and is really important. And so it, again, it comes back to where am I putting my energy, my mental thought and, and focus, and how can I control that better so that I can design and create the life I don't want? Well, and, you know, driving yourself to finally... I think get into things that you're like willing to admit to yourself, Hey, this is actually really important to me. And I want to, I want to try it. Um, I think that's great. And then we run into this weird thing that happens where, and I see it a lot now that I have a little more exposure to how people look at the internet instead of just looking at the internet myself. I see a lot of people look at like people who are doing the thing they want to do but they're experts at it. And they're like, well, I don't have any of the skills and I definitely can't do this. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're comparing yourself to the wrong people. Like this is your end goal. You're looking at yourself five or 10 years in the future, instead of looking at yourself, you know, next week or next month. Um, it just seems like we're, we're looking at the wrong things or going about it in the wrong way. Well, and it's, you bring up a great point. And what's fascinating about the, the time we live in today is we are learning at a pace faster than ever before in human history. And I'll just give you an example from, from my own childhood. If I wanted to know who the first five emperors of Rome were when I was 10 years old, 
that information, find that information could take weeks because it would, it was depending on if we had encyclopedias, which if people don't know what encyclopedias were, um, that's one thing. But if you had this collection of books that might have the information available into it on the off chance, maybe, so that's one option. The off chance, maybe my parents had like, maybe my dad, because he was in the military might've known. Otherwise you're going to the library. And now that requires logistics because you have to get to the library. So that requires planning. So now that's scheduling. And when you get to the library, you have to go to the card catalog. And that is like a manual version of Google, basically. And so that is hopefully they have a book on the subject. Hopefully that book is checked in. And then you can access the book. And hopefully the book has the information that you're looking for. So that is to answer that one question 40 years ago could have taken weeks or even months. And now that question can be answered literally within seconds. That is a true capability that every single person on the planet who has a smartphone has access to. And it becomes a question of how are you using, like you said, kind of how are you using the internet? And if you look at someone who has had the success you've had, instead of like looking at them and be like, oh, I'll never get there because I don't have this, I don't have that. It's you have to start embodying what's it going to feel like when I get to there? Like, what am I going to feel? It's not about what they've already accomplished. It's about what do I feel inside me when I accomplish that? Because that is the only way you're going to realize that future version of yourself is to basically feel yourself into it. And if you've read Napoleon Hill, if you've read Neville Goddard, if you read Alan Watts, Wayne Dyer, Tony Robbins, like there's, there's this certainly this gravity of success that people have had about the law of attraction and and really the how feeling is the importance the secret to really making those things happen because you cannot achieve something that you can't realize or conceive of first like you and and really the power of that comes from feeling when we really feel something is possible and we feel like we've accomplished it that's what the law of attraction is. That's how we attract something into our lives. So that's really, if you see like the big goal is to be, you know, do stadium concerts or the big goal is to you know, fly in space or whatever, you have to kind of get clear on what you want, start to feel it, and then kind of figure out also why you want it, obviously, because that's going to be a huge influence on the resources that you draw to make it happen. But that feeling is so important because that is really kind of going to be your compass towards, okay, what is the feeling I would have from having that kind of success? And if you can't conceive of that feeling, that's something that's kind of where your focus is. Like, hey, well, what does it take for me to even feel a taste of what it's going to be like at that next level? Yeah. And the beauty of the internet is that we have access to, I mean, untold amounts of human wisdom, even from, you know, everything ancient to current. Like when I wanted to start this show, I had no idea, like most people listening, I'll pose this question to them. How do you start a podcast? Where do you post it? And that was a question that I legitimately had to like struggle with. I was like, oh man, where do you post it? But the beauty is that I had listened to podcasts. I had, you know, commute, like I took part in the community and I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to talk to these guys and, you know, get to know them. And now I have some great friends who are great podcasters with much more successful shows than me. And I just asked them, Hey, how do you start a podcast? Like where, where am I supposed to post this? And they, no hesitation. It wasn't bothering them. They just said, Oh, 
go to this website. That's the one we use. And you just pay the, pay the service fee and upload your stuff. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, the amount of hardship that I just skipped, not having to do like oh, yeah. old school trial and error. <laughs> like, well, just- and that's no, Colton, that's the beauty of today. We live in an age where people, you know, one, I mean, I've taken so many online courses, you know, virtual classes or whatever to do stuff that previously, certainly prior to the pandemic, there wasn't the drive to have stuff online. Like it was, let's go to live events to see stuff. And that's hard to do because that, again, takes logistics. It's travel, it's Airbnbs or hotels, it's rental cars or Ubers. There's a whole thing to that. And now you don't have to, like, you don't necessarily have to do that. There's certainly, there's certainly a value to being in that kind of environment, but now you can take courses with people online and the access, like you, I I love what you said, because like I did a course, I did a program um, two or three months ago. It was a Tony Robbins event, but he had someone on this gentleman named Arthur Samuel Joseph, who is uh, an opera singer, but also like a voice, I guess a voice coach is probably the simplest way. It does not do him service because he's been doing this for 55 years. And when you hear him talk, it's not just, it's not just the power of how he represents himself and presents himself with his voice, but it's the understanding he has of history, of the history of voice. And it goes back to ancient Hebrew and like the word, there's one word, I don't remember the name of the word, but it's the word for breath and spirit. And so like you listen to him talk and you realize this is a man who has condensed thousands of years of history of the primary vehicle that most of us think we use, you know, obviously body language is a huge part of it, but the voice, especially in a podcast environment or radio environment, things like that, the voice is really what conveys who we are. And to hear him talk, you realize you, it's almost like you're listening to a conversation between like Socrates and Plato because he is that brilliant. And that is available to anyone. He has a course online that anyone can take. It's like 97 or $200 or something. It's, it's not, it's not, and when you look at the value of what you're going to get out of it from when you really apply it, it's tremendous and it's certainly worth the money, but that is just one example. Jim Quick, if you've ever read his book, Limitless, which came out right during the pandemic 2020, Jim Quick is a brain coach and he teaches you how to improve your memory. He teaches you how to read faster. He teaches you how to retain people's names. He teaches you like all this stuff because he has honed his craft and he's been doing his, I think for 20 or 30 years. I mean, I don't, I don't know how old he is. He looks pretty young, but but again, there are legends who have been devoted their lives to kind of these things. It's again, it's the Thomas Edison principle and just a different mindset, right? And it's I'm going to hone and focus myself on this until I master it. And then I'm going to teach other people how to do that too. And we all have access to that. And it's a question of is are you going to spend your time on the internet there? Or are you going to spend it chasing likes on social media or like try, like you know, controversy, like trying to get attention? Like what, 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 how is the internet going to work for you? Or are you working for the internet by like habituating, perpetuating social media things? Yeah. It gives us this really cool ability to like accelerate people's growth in any given topic. Like, you know, say his dream was to work on just the voice, like, you know, understanding the whole system. Now he can take all of his teachings, all his learnings, and he can condense them into someone whose dream is the same as his, 
and they get to, you know, do that for another 30 years of their life. And then they get to pass on both of those things to the next person. And like, we can just accelerate these things end over end. So long as you're both willing to, you know, chase your passion and help other people. Well, and I love what you said. And it's uh, the phrase I've heard is decades into days. In other words, people are going to share with you over the course of a few days, whether their you know, training program is days or minutes or hours or whatever, but they are synthesizing what it took them decades to discover into days to share with you. And that's the value you pay for when you pay for one of those services. And so, and that's like, there's collect, there's that collective wisdom that you talked about, right? It's, it's how to do your podcast. It's how to enhance your relationships. It's how to remember people's names better or how to retain memory, you know, information better. It's how to use your voice as the, the real voice is power, right? really owning your voice and owning your identity. It's all those things. And once you, once you harness those things, yeah, it is. There's a tremendous opportunity for you to grow as a person. And part of what I've come to realize is <clears throat> I remember, certainly I feel like pre-pandemic, whenever I looked at something on the internet, and part of this, I feel like is because of 5G, 5G, like our technology, like the bandwidth has gotten so much better and capabilities have gotten better. But I remember I would have a sense of when I was looking at something on YouTube, I would date it based on when it was. And that in some ways contextualized the information for me. And so like, so I, really, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would have almost a sense of judgment about like the veracity of what the person was saying, if it was like a presentation or whatever. And what I've come to realize is when you, it's almost like watching a movie and you know, they say you have to like have this willing suspense of disbelief. Have you like, you go to a movie and your friend's like, oh, I, this isn't like the book or this is what I expected. Oh, yeah, isn't it? You're not supposed to expect anything. You're supposed to go in and like just absorb yourself into the story. The same thing is true when you apply for an online course or like buy a purchase an online course is you can't purchase it going into it questioning what the person is telling you. Like you have to be like, okay, this person is an expert and I'm buying what they're saying. And that's obviously, that's a discretion that you have to develop and hone so that you don't buy programs that may not be what you're after. But when you do the research and you find these resources, then it's like, okay, I'm committed to this. I pay the money for this. I want to get as much of this out of as possible. And when I do that, in order to do that, really, it means like I have to completely invest. This person knows what they're talking about. And I am like, I'm focused on them so I can absorb as much information as possible. Yeah. And it's the difference, you know, if you just like rated things on how important they are to you, like, oh, I have a yard and I have to take care of it. I don't need to take the landscaping masterclass on it because it's like, it just does not apply to my life in that way. Right. So you're fine getting by with some free content, but if you are trying to become, you know, a writer and you want to actually be a good writer, maybe don't take free advice from people writing totally for free, like because they're also not getting paid for it. Exactly. What well, and I love. I took a master class with Neil Gaiman. Some Neil Gaiman has done. He wrote like the Sandman for Vertigo Comics, but he's also done some great um, fiction books. I want to say Matilda maybe was one of his. Um, and then he's also done like a slew of things on North Norse mythology. But he has a master class that's available online. And I remember he talks about. I want to say, I don't know if it's Snow White or Sleeping Beauty. 
but he takes this fairy tale and he completely twists on its head where he's like, okay, so the prince is taking this woman who's dead and wants to kiss her and he's taking her back to his castle in like this really dark, weird, twisted way. The evil stepmother is trying to prevent him from doing that because of the power that his once this daughter wakes or something. And it's like, it's the same story. It's just told in a different perspective. And you're like, oh my God, like, I love this guy. And so there are certainly classes out there. Masterclass is a great resource to do that because again, like you said, it is people taking their expertise and condensing it down. And whether it's, um, oh my gosh, I can see his face. I want to say like Martin Scorsese's on there if you want to do directing. Like, think about that. Think about you can have access to someone like Martin Scorsese who has like done some legendary film work. I mean, legendary film work. And you can have access to him. That is phenomenal because that, and that's the direction we're headed. It's like, it's again, in the day and age we live today, there is more opportunity for each of us to have our own individual unique identity than ever before in history. When I was growing up, we had three television channels. Think about that. We had three television channels. We all got the same programming. Literally, that was America. Like we all had the same programming. Now, like eight-year-old kids have their own smartphone. Like eight-year-old kids are watching whatever they want to watch on a Saturday morning if someone else is watching TV. Like, so the identities that we carve are completely unique. And each of us has a unique gift. Each of us has something that Martin Scorsese has or Neil Gaiman has or Tom Cruise or whoever you want to say, Robert Downey Jr. And we all have that capability and capacity within inside us, but it's up to us like only you can harness the greatness within you. No one can do that for you. No one. And if you really want to step outside yourself and be, create something bigger than you've ever imagined possible, like what, what have you got to lose? Like there's, there's nothing to be gained from living a life of safety. All it is, is it's groundhog day. It is. I get to do the same thing today. I get to hang out with the same people again today. I get to feel the same feeling I felt yesterday. And I know it, it kind of ties into we have on average, I want to say we have 60,000 thoughts a day. That's the number that comes to mind from um, what I've been researching. But the reality of those 60,000 thoughts is 90% of them for most people are the same thoughts they had yesterday. And so if you want to talk about a, rep a recipe for like frustration and anxiety, especially in this world of hybrid work and post-pandemic, that is a recipe for frustration. If you're thinking the same thoughts you thought yesterday, and those are the same thoughts from the day before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's the cruise ship. Get off the cruise ship. Don't stay on the cruise ship. Get on your own ship. Um, but yeah, so it's, I mean, there's tremendous opportunity, but again, it's up to the individual and all of us have this greatness, And but it, it really is up to us to harness that greatness. Yeah, and I think that's a huge, huge thing to say like, I think everyone needs to realize like you are entirely unique. Yeah. Like no matter who you are, where you come from, what you do, you have a unique perspective and a unique interest that you can bring to the world. And I think that's so much more important than setting like some of the very bland goals that I hear honestly too frequently where people are like, Oh, I want to be rich or I want to be famous. <laughs> Like, okay, that's, that's a thing, right? but it's not a purpose. Like you definitely are not 
you don't have purpose just because you have money. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And you're not going to be, you know, happy achieving your goal. If your goal is simply people stare at me all the time, like fame is not, not a goal in itself. Like you need, you get that thing, but you got to go somewhere. You got to do something for you. I, Colton, I love what you're saying. And to me, it's like, you have to sculpt yourself. Like that is the best way I can say it. And if you say, I want to be rich, I want to be famous. That's not sculpting yourself. That is taking a six foot block of marble or granite and knocking off a few corners. Like that is like, I want to be rich too. I want to be famous too. I want to be wealthy. You have to get to like, I want to transform the world by helping people unleash their imagination. And I'm going to do that through the art of storytelling. That's what my next book is about is, but it's like, I want to, you know, it's, I love the story of Michelangelo when he, when he sculpted David, because people asked him after he did it, like, how did you do this? And his, his response was, well, David was always there. I just chipped parts the way it weren't him. And that's what you have to do to yourself is you have to kind of chip apart the way the parts that aren't you to really get to this version of yourself. And again, that means letting go of, you know, certainly we've all experienced this where I've had friends who I love dearly, but I realized they weren't helping me grow. They weren't challenging me to become the next version of myself. They were where I went when I wanted comfort and familiarity. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's where you live, then that's counterintuitive and counterproductive to growth. And so I don't live there anymore. And I've changed, like even recently I changed my gym habits because I realized I was spending too much time at the gym because that's where my source of comfort was. And it was, I love working out. Most of my friends, you know, or at least the people that I physically spend time with were there. And I wanted to change that a little bit. And you kind of have to keep doing that because that's where the growth comes from constantly seeking to challenge yourself. And the only way I found to do that, that's, that's, you know, if you, if you go back to Edison, by the 10,000th time, he had sculpted, he had sculpted the light bulb. Like he, he was the light bulb. He knew it like in his essence, he had that thing figured out and it took him 10,000 times. And people would say, oh my God, like, that's terrible. What a waste of life. Is it? We're still talking about him this much time. Like we, the lights we experience in some way, shape or form go back to what he did. Like they can be halogen or whatever, but like that's what Edison's contribution to the world has been. And when you think about like the mark that you can imprint and and give to other people, that's where the impact is. It's not about having the material success, the material success. I mean, that you can pursue that. And there are people who've made a successful way to do that. That isn't necessarily contributing to others from what I can tell, but the ultimate contribution is doing that in a way that serves other people. And that's where the success comes from. And that's where the material wealth comes from. But it's also like, again, it comes back to this feeling. How do I, if I want to play the, for some reason, the, the crazy example that comes to me is I heard someone say recently that they wanted to, they wanted to have a plane that had bedrooms on it. And they brought that in, they manifested it into their life. They did that. And this is a person who's super successful and has a, like contributed tons to the, planet but you're like he's not he's not there's no dna wise no different from me like we're the same species he just figured out how to make a plane with bedrooms appear in his life okay like i mean it's crazy but you're like okay like that's what we're doing i mean like look at look at elon musk is building a rocket ship to mars 
you don't think that is something that he like how do you come up with that in this day and age like that is planet of the apes like that is that is what was that game was it what sid meyer civilization did you ever play that yeah, like yeah. that against like Empire Civilization. Like that's how the game ends: is you have to be a rocket ship, or you do something to revitalize the planet, or whatever. But like, is that where we are? Like, is that the capability that we have with human imagination? And yeah, like I've I've watched videos of him talk about like what's needed to get the rocket to Mars and all this other stuff. And like he knows his stuff. He's not I'm not just missing him. Like he's a genius. He's had incredible success, but his imagination is off the chain. Like that is, and, and again, we all have that imagination. When we were kids, we took like our lives are ruled by our imagination. And then we kind of grow out of that. But what you realize is that's where like, that's where your dreams are. Your dreams are the things that you feel like are wonky. You dismissed because of peer pressure or because you felt like you had to get rid of them to grow up. But that's where like, that's where the marrow of life really is, is pursuing our dreams. And that requires every part of you. Like, why wouldn't it? Like, why it requires you to shed the stuff that's not going to serve you to become a better version of yourself. It's kind of the, the transformation for the butterfly. Yeah. Well, and I love, you know, the way you pose this where it's like, well, how does this help literally anyone? Right. Yeah. You're yeah. like, okay, break it down. Like challenge your things that you want that are nebulous with like, how does this affect someone else? Like, oh, I want to be rich. Like, okay, rich enough to do what if you couldn't spend money on yourself? Right. And they're right. like, oh, I, I guess I want to like fix the, the water crisis. Like, okay, great. Now, why is the water crisis important to you? And they're like, oh, because, and they're like, eventually you're going to, to boil down to like, oh, I really just want to like figure out a way to fix this thing that I hate or should be fixed. You know, the same thing, like, oh, I want to be famous. Okay. What are you going to draw attention to that's not yourself using your fame? Exactly. Exactly. No, I love what you said. It, it makes so much sense. And again, that's the beauty of what we live in today. There is so much, there's an abundance of information out there on the web now that can help you shape whatever you want to do. If you want to podcast, if you want to write a book, if you want to make movies, if you want to star in movies, there's all this stuff available to you, but people need to get clear on what they want. It also requires, honestly, the biggest thing for me is I have turned off a lot of the noise from the outside world. Like I don't watch the news anymore because I don't need, like, I don't need the drama. And that's like the news. Certainly when I was growing up again, it wasn't 24 by seven. But you realize one of the realities of 24 by 7 is they have to create a storyline in their company that is going to get people to follow. Like that is that's and and the news, if it bleeds, it leads. We've all heard that before. Like, so I don't like I do not have time for that. Like it is not important to my life. Like if if something horrible is going to happen in the country, I feel like I'm gonna know about it sooner than turning on CNN. And I just like I just don't choose to live in that space or, you know, or Fox news. I'm trying to be biased towards one or the other, but, um, but you have to shut out the noise. Like you have to shut out the noise in your life. And that does include sometimes friends. It, it includes like getting really clear on what you want. And it's not a personal affront to those people. It's just like your relationship's not helping me grow. I love you dearly, but I have to go on. So yeah, I mean, we, this is like, this is the, in, in many ways, I feel like this is the coolest time to be alive because, I, and again, going back to superhero movies, right? I remember when Superman first flew Christopher Reeve in 1978. And it was cheesy, but it was also cool because like 
there were some scenes where it's like, okay, that's pretty cool. He looks like he's really flying. Like I know it's like wires or whatever, but but that was pretty cool. And and now you can't tell. Like you can't like any superhero movie you see. Like I watched Deadpool the other night because Ryan Reynolds is a genius. And like, what is CGI and what is real? Like, what is Ryan doing something and what is computer? And you really can't tell anymore. And I say that because then it's like, okay, well, we're going to be at five years from now. What's going to like, what's going to come after 5G? And, and again, it's this collapsing of information down through history into condensable chunks. We are collectively doing that. And if you look at, I'll, I'll tell you something that's kind of, that I just uh, heard over the past couple of weeks, there's a book called The Fourth Turning. And, um, it's this idea that history has seasons to it. And for nations, nations also have seasons to them. And so the author in particular with regards to the United States looks at uh, 80 year spurts of history. And he starts with the American revolution. And so obviously there was a crisis in the country. We were trying to you know, break away from the empire. 1787, we create the constitution and Washington first president. What happens 80 years after that? 1865, Civil War. What happens 80 years after that? World War II. What happens 80 years after that? Pandemic. So what you see is these 80-year spurts have some legitimacy to them, and each one represents a different turning. So the first, the first 1787 was the first turning. Civil War is the second turning. <clears throat> World War II, the, the third turning pandemic now we're in the fourth turning so that's a question of then is like what season is the nation is this winter is this springtime or like what's and what's going to come next because obviously with the shift in technology with our connectedness as a species now more on the planet because everyone kind of went through the shared experience of the pandemic in a very similar sense what's going to be next and that's kind of the next threshold is is this a you know, are we evolving into you know, like automation? AI is going to be a reality. Like we're going to have robots in the next few years that are going to do stuff in our houses on a regular basis. We're going to have conversations with them. It's going to be very benign. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator shooting up everything. It's going to be a very different experience than that. But it's also what does it mean for for us as humans? Like, and and um, I don't know if I know I'm throwing between the fourth turning and a lot of uh, different things. But have you heard of the book The Singularity Is Near? Yeah, so Ray Kurzweil wrote this, uh, I want to say 10 or 12, maybe 15 years ago. And it's uh, this idea that the convergence of technology with human understanding is going to reach a crossroads. And, and if you think of Elon Musk, it's this idea that we're going to embed microchips in our bodies and, and that's going to happen. And that, and that very well could happen. But there's also this other idea that we're going to transcend human biology and that's going to by way of intelligence and kind of this connection with the divine. And that's yoga, that's spirituality, whatever you want, however you want to define it. Well, Kurzweil said in 2006 that, you know, we could be 30 years or so away from the singularity happening. And you can make the argument with the pandemic, with the fourth turning with this 80 year cycle, that the singularity could be much nearer than that. And if, if it's a question of human understanding, transcending our biology to become something else, then that could be a really cool story for the planet, because then it's like the evolution of the species and we all get to be a part of that because it's like this kind of conscious awakening. Yeah. It's very much like looking to the future in a predictive sense and saying like, what's next for us. Yeah. 
you know, it's the it's the cruise ship captain again. Like, hey, are we gonna sit at dock or are we gonna go figure something out? Yep. Like, you want to take a trip or you want to you want to just stay here and look at the pretty scenery? Yeah, you want to play it safe or you want adventure? And really, I mean, if anything has become clear to me after the pandemic, is like I want my life to be an adventure, like every day. I don't, and it doesn't mean that I surrender to chaos and I have no idea what's coming, but it means that like I welcome uncertainty in my life because I know that at my core, that I'm a skillful enough sailor to figure it out. Yeah. No, I think this has all been super awesome. I hope people are like taking notes, taking things away from this. Um, But I've appreciated your time immensely. I love this. I thought it was really fun, but I wanted to give you some time as well before I kept you here forever uh, just to kind of plug, you know, what you do and the books you have and the things, you know, where people can find you. Oh, yeah. No, appreciate Colton. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a blast. I can't believe it's almost been 90 minutes already. So uh, great discussion. Uh, I am on, uh, I have a website, davidrichardsauthor.com. So both my books are available there. They're also available on Amazon. The first book, Whiskey and Yoga, about finding your purpose in life. Uh, 2017, number one international bestseller please check that out. And then The Lighthouse Keeper came out in 2020. And that's a really, it's a story about how to master your mind. So there's a, a correlation between the two books. Uh, I'm on Instagram at David Richards Author, Facebook, and then Twitter, David Richards A2. Uh, and then be on the lookout for my next book. Uh, it's going to be super awesome because it's going to contribute to everything that we discussed. It's called Love Letters to the Virgin Mary, The Resurrection of King David. And it puts... Thor, the god of thunder, in the heart of Christianity. So interesting. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I think that'd be fun. I hope people go and pick them up. If you do pick them up digitally uh, through any service, as I always remind people, leave a good review. Yes, please. That is, that is such a huge impact for creators. It really is. It really is. Thanks for that. Colton, again, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Of course. Thank you for coming on, David. This has been awesome. Like I didn't know what we were going to get into and I've just enjoyed (laughs) myself so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. It's almost unbelievable that I have been in the top three education podcasts on Podbean for nearly two months now. That's awesome. That's all thanks to listeners who take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible, or just click the subscribe button wherever you're listening from. It helps the show grow in ways you can't imagine. Also, if you have not already, please tell someone you know to listen to this show. Word of mouth from listeners gets more people to listen than any form of promotion I could ever do. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. The August official top countries so far. Number one, the United States, with top states Illinois and California. Number two, the United Kingdom. Number three, Australia, led by Victoria. Number four, Brazil, enjoying its first time in the top five, I believe. And number five, Canada, led by Alberta, and literally a single listener away from being beaten by Sweden. That's all I have for now. I'll see you all Thursday for the next superstitious episode. Buh-bye!